Welcome to the podcast about everything. I am your host, Don Mast. For today's episode, put the top down, slap on your Ray-Bans, as the Wolfman and Dracula go Hollywood. Enjoy episode number three of a podcast about everything. Hello, Michael. Hello, how are you? Hey, very well, very well. Thank you so much for joining me for this week's episode of the podcast about everything. And and for those of you that are just joining us, um, this is my co-host and my dear friend, Michael Allison. He's owner of Studio EFX. Uh, He's also a talented artist. He is a historical restoration expert. He's a history or a historian of all things interesting, including folklore. I mean, we go back and forth quite a bit talking about weird and unusual things that most people would be like, okay, those guys are nuts. And then you're also a lecturer for the Historical Society. And, you know, you're a connoisseur of great stories. So on that, you know, I just wanted to welcome you back to the show. Great to be back. And just before we get started, I, I just want to take a moment because, you know, I, I know you have seen it too. I, I want to thank the community, the listeners, uh, the friends that have really kind of come out to support the podcast and to share it and to subscribe. I mean, it's been very, uh, it's been very touching, uh, the folks that kind of came out and have uh, stood with us and stood be, beside us for this journey. It's been exciting the way the podcast in its infancy has been received already. And uh, we have some boosters and promoters in the community. And I, I think that's great. And we're just getting started. Absolutely. So I appreciate you all for listening and for being a part of this incredible journey. And I got to put my pipe down. I'm having a, my, my wife is, is not with me right now so i'm having a uh, dr grabo with some casey jones last ride it's a cherry tobacco and what is better than you know there's really nothing better than a pipe and a good story and so uh today's story is actually a a a two-fold story we're going to talk about two different topics and, and both of them are rather frightening to me anyway the first one is about vlad or dracula you know this dude that was born back in, I think, 1431, if I'm correct, in Transylvania to a noble family. And, you know, it, it, it's, it, it's all about this vampire, uh, per se. But then we also have uh, a, another story about werewolves. And, you know, some scholars believe that werewolves maybe made their debut in one of the oldest writings ever. Uh, I, I think it was called Epic of Gilgamesh. It was an old poem back in the times of ancient Mesopotamia. And, you know, it's, it really comes from, you know, Hollywood actually portraying these beasts in a totally different way. Like if you remember the old Abbott and Costello movies where they meet Dracula, where they meet the werewolf, but then also some of the modern movies like Wolf or Twilight or Buffy the Vampire Slayer or anything that Francis Ford Coppola could concoct. (laughs) And so, you know, you know, Hollywood has been kind of crazy with these 
characters particularly, and I know you know the origin, and these are stories that have captivated and caused many a nightmares over the years. So tell us more, if you could, sure. about these sure. characters. Um, I, I'd like to turn things around just a little bit. I'd actually like to, if you don't mind, I'd like to talk about werewolves first. Uh, um, okay. Most of these, these two creatures, um, they kind of travel together a little bit. Because really, they find their origins in legends that we would call Indo-European or Middle Eastern. You know, it's that sort of, we're not really quite sure which culture originated this. So we know that there was a heavy Indian, what we would now call the subcontinent of India, uh, heavy in cultural influence there and in the Middle East on most of these stories and these legends. And both the stories of the vampire and the werewolf have their origins in that area. And, um, I, I, and you made a really good point. Uh, one of the places where the werewolf legend comes to us is from this sort of universal legend of the wild man. The hairy critter, this hairy guy who lives outside <laughs> the laws of civilization, who is a loner, who's dangerous, who's scary. And uh, you find this kind of story as a universal. If you go to the ancient Greeks, you find stories of Pan and the fauns and the satyrs, who are these hairy goat people who um, oh. you know sort of embody licentiousness and they're they're horny <laughs> and, you know all this sort of unbridled um, passion and spontaneity that civilization tends to want to tamp down they represent but I see let's, okay. I want to since we made the movie connection already I want to really set the mood with a piece of gypsy poetry, okay? Oh, boy. Here we go. All right. Uh, Even a man who's pure of heart and says his prayers by night may become a wolf when the wolfbane blooms and the autumn moon is bright. Now, I don't have an authorship on that, but it was, of course, repeated by the old gypsy woman, Maliva, with a very thick, pseudo-Russian accent in the 1941 <laughs> movie starring Lon Chaney Jr. called The Wolfman. Oh, and it. there are tropes that we now identify with werewolves uh, and werewolf stories that come from two movies. Um, one was, first one was from 1935. It was called The Werewolf of London, which is also a great oh. Warren Zevon song. And, yes, it is. <laughs> um, in the Werewolf of London, you see a couple of tropes that were not well developed previously from folklore. One is that if a werewolf bites you, just like um, just like any other disease, you will catch being a werewolf. You will become what we call a lycanthrope you know, or lycanthrope, someone who will turn into a wolf. And the time when you'll do this 
is under the full moon. Oh, okay. And then that mm. was further developed in the Wolfman, where they added things like, you know, a werewolves are basically immortal. They'll live forever uh, unless you shoot them specifically with a silver bullet. And that it can oh, be passed down through a family. And that, you know, as she, Maliva says, is a thorny path you walk, my son. You know, and that sort of thing. <laughs> so um, all these tropes came together. But here's the trick. The Wolfman was written by a uh, German, he was originally born in Germany, a German uh, science fiction and horror writer named Kurt Siotomak. Kurt Siotomak uh, came out of the same Berlin film studios uh, that, well, numerous people, his brother, his older brother was a director and one of the fellows along with Alfred Hitchcock and some other people that developed the entire film noir um, uh, technique of telling murder mystery stories, you know, with dark shadows, very German gothic oh, yeah. kind of mm -hmm. looking, expressionist looking uh, set design and lighting. Um, you know, Fred Zimmerman, who became a big wheel in Hollywood and especially in, in television eventually, and um, Billy Wilder, the director of, you know, among other great movies, Some Like It Hot. Uh, oh, yes. All these guys came out of the, the Berlin studios and they were filming. They were working. They all worked on different silent movies, like, for example, Metropolis, which is a very famous science fiction movie, silent science fiction movie from Germany. And of course, the other thing they had in common was they were all Jewish. And so, and as being kind of very talented intellectual types, when Hitler began to rise to power, they got out of Dodge and finally all made their way to Hollywood. And so Kurt Siotomak, being a very talented writer and knowing some things about European folklore, wrote this script, which really solidified things in people's minds about how and what werewolves are and how they operate in the, you know, in the modern mindset. And pretty much all of it was just made up. <laughs> it has nothing to do with the legends about werewolves. Like I said, these were, these were, Stories about wild men, people who lived outside of, you know, the laws of civilization. Uh, but they were also something else. They were also stories that came to us from um, uh, folklore about warriors. Uh, yes. So there's a word that we use, uh, you know, and these are all tied together. We, for example, we've, we're going through a full moon phase right now, all right? So there was right. a very popular trope, and it's still, people insist that it's true to this day, that, you know, people become mentally agitated during the time of the full moon. <laughs> that, you know, I think they're right about that. Well, yeah, but <laughs> it may be <laughs> such a powerful cultural trope that that's 
an expectation, and that's how both the person acting out and the person observing them acting out. That may be the conclusion that we've come to, because because lunacy, the you know the idea that people lose their minds, comes from Luna, which has to do with the moon, and uh, you know the the different phases of the moon, and people are said to go when they're when they are lunatics engaged in lunacy, they're said to go, and here's the key word, berserk. Now, ah. that's an interesting word. That's a really old German word. You know, it's ancient German. And it goes right. back to when one of the Roman generals was fighting in Dacia, I, if I'm pronouncing that correct, which is, of course, that sort of... Um, general area of Germany that the Romans were trying to conquer when they were also fighting the Gauls on a different front and things like that. These are all Celtic tribes, basically, but these were German Celts. And oh, yeah. mm -hmm. um, the Dacians terrified them because the Germans, or, I mean, the Romans were all about, you know, order and discipline in their military and everything. Suddenly they were confronted with these people who were foaming at the mouth, running into battle, screaming, suffering horrible wounds, and nothing seemed to affect them, and they were wearing animal skins. So some of them wore bear skins, some of them wore wolf skins, and these were like what you might consider an animal totem. They were taking right. on the mm -hmm. aspect of the animal, which was fierce and scary. And so they began to, as a matter of fact, the word berserk comes from two words, beer, which means bear, and cirque, which means shirt. <laughs> so you're said so you're wearing the bear, you're wearing a bear shirt. And there were other terms for people who wore wolf, wolf skins. And also there was even some warriors who wore the skins of and tusks of wild boars. So Wow, yeah. that would be frightening. Oh yeah, it's very, very scary. So the bottom line is that these legendary warriors were, would get themselves fired up. They, there were rituals that they would perform. They drank potions. Now, some people think they were drink, drinking a potion that was basically alcohol mixed with um, crushed mushrooms. That was a popular thing, but oh. when they actually did some excavations and found some residue they were able to, um, to analyze, uh, they found that this was alcohol mixed with uh, hensbane. And hensbane's part of that group of psychotropic plants that, you know, deadly nightshade and um, uh, plants like that um, uh, belong to. And, and it causes hallucinations among many, many other things that the, how the body reacts to it. So these guys were... Um, were pretty whacked out <laughs> and and they were yeah they were they were they carrying, carrying weapons, weapons. they were they were carrying weapons their own troops would avoid them because they would literally attack wow. anyone they saw 
like the frenzy of a wild beast. So there's the underlying idea that, number one, you could take on the aspects of a dangerous beast. And number two, you would attack anyone near you in a frenzy of just mm. violent destruction, animalistic lust. So there you right. go. There's the fundamental trope of being a werewolf. You're a person who wants to live outside of society. You might be uh, a wild man or some sort of person like that. You take on the aspects of an animal. There might be rituals, and religious rituals and drugs involved. And um, you were best avoided <laughs> because you were unpredictable well, and nobody knew how you would react. Well, quite honestly, I think during this pandemic, I, I think that I actually picked up some of these traits with oh. not shaving, also being more reclusive, temperamental. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah I, and, I see that. And you can also see where someone who <laughs> might have some sport, sort of brain chemistry issues, which, you know, are not unique to our modern age, would be out living in a shack in the woods. And, you know, they could be running around naked. They could be putting on animal skins. They would be smelly and dirty and animal-like and very, very threatening and very, very scary. So so th this it sort of stuff began to percolate through European culture. Um, the Germans were big on it. Um, in interestingly enough, not so much the British, but the French. Oh, yeah, there's all kinds of stories of werewolves. Mm. And as Europe became more Christian, it was seen as, you know, it went to look like something that might involve being possessed by a demon or, you know, or, or after the 16, 15 and 16 hundreds, after the books, the hammer of the witches was published in Germany and demonology was published by James the first in England. Um, it became the idea that this was part of a witch's curse. Oh, and and okay. during the mm -hmm. witch trials, uh, especially in continental Europe, there were also werewolf trials. I mean, they were rounding up their neighbors and saying, oh, the little lady that lives at the end of the lane who practices herbal medicine and, you know, is a midwife, um, you know, she put a curse on that farmer over there and he started acting like an animal. So we got to bring them both in because she turned him into a werewolf. So now you start to see these modern, some of the modern ideas starting to come about, you know, but it would be post medieval Europe, uh, where it was actually the very beginning of the enlightenment period, where suddenly uh, all these ideas began to coalesce that, you know, women who were, of, you know, maybe questionable character or who were engaged in herbal practices and things like that would be witches and that men who did the same or men who were violent and lived alone might be wizards or werewolves or both and it but it became an excuse for 
tremendous torture and and murder of you know people's neighbors all throughout Europe for quite a bit of time, and and, and unfortunately, and for really no the further we no got reason. into you know the Protestant Reformation came in. The further we got into so-called enlightenment and nationalism, kind of the worse it got. So, um, so that is how these werewolf stories came about in a in a practical way. But also, you know, they became part of folklore and they became written down, and in some ways, they became disguised. Um, I had mentioned Charles. Uh, Peralt and his Mother Goose stories uh, last time we talked and a, a couple of his Mother Goose stories were um, basically analogies to werewolves. So, you know, the most obvious one is Little Red Riding Hood because, you know, the wolf oh, can somehow magically swallow grandma whole. Because when the woodsman comes and kills him, <laughs> not with a silver bullet, but with his iron axe, because iron was the traditional uh, ward against, you know, magic and witchcraft. But also the wolf talks. Mm -hmm. He talks to Little Red Riding Hood. <laughs> you know, he speaks English to her. True. So how many talking wolves have you ever met? <laughs> Versus, say, you know, someone more like, you know, Lon Chaney Jr. and the Wolfman, who's, of course, a tragic victim in that story. You know, so now also now the story has gone from this is something that people wanted to be. They wanted the power of these animals coursing through their bodies. They wanted this totem animal to take them over so that they could go berserk to now the person is a victim. And, of course, the ultimate cursed victim beast story is beauty and the beast and just like That's at right. the ending you know the classic line from the ending of king kong it wasn't the airplane it wasn't the bullets it was beauty killed the beast there you go so what what happens while well, love uh -huh. triumphs over the curse that turns this this haughty prince into a monster into a werewolf basically um though he's been disneyized <laughs> and musicalized and yes. turned into a romantic lead watered down and, yes uh, okay uh, we'll mention stephanie myers because she's going to get mentioned again and uh her series of books with shiny vampires <laughs> and native american shapeshifters yes. who are werewolves so it takes it full circle back to, oh. yeah, it's not it's not a curse. It's what we want to do. It's our totem animal, and it gives us power. So, and, and interestingly enough, once again, the werewolf is an archetype because you find this same theme worldwide. In native tribes, you will find, like in South America, right. you'll find were panthers. In India, there are were tigers. In Africa, there are were lions and were hyenas. You know, these are powerful, dangerous animals that if you want to be the scariest guy in the block, that's going to be your totem. 
Yeah. Even like oh, Eye yeah. of the Tiger. Yeah, I you know? Tiger is, is a great double on time. Famous song. Or, you know, uh, yeah, I'm a wear tiger. <laughs> I'm going to be scary as heck, you know, <laughs> and come and get you. So there yeah. you go. Um, we, okay, there's a wonderful podcast who, you know, I'm probably guilty of ripping off more than I'm aware of because I admire this guy so much. But there's um, two people have a podcast called Monster Talk to plug them and blake smith is the originator of it and he worked with karen stolzno who's a doc a doctor uh and who is also interested in you know things like paranormal research but it's a more skeptical show um and it's a lot of fun i mean it's a lot of laughs and things like that and blake smith came up he coined the term scripteds which is what we're kind of talking about today. We're talking about folklore and we're talking about the origins of these stories. But what we are ending up with is not so much cryptids or folklore or something paranormal as we're ending up with something scripted that comes, comes from somebody's book, somebody's writings. And um, that's sort of the origin of these things. So, so you want to talk about vampires now? You got any questions? I mean, you know, oh yes, I tend to ramble on. Well, can can, can I become a vampire if uh, one were to break into my house? Like, for example, a bat and like, well, that's an you know maybe point chew on my neck or something. We'll start right off. Vampire bats weren't generally known to Europeans until about the seventeen hundreds. There are no vampire bats in Europe. Ah. Uh. But the connection of vampires and these kind of demons with pestilence and vermin and dark forces, that goes right to the key. Okay. So have you, have you ever right. heard of a car? Uh, almost an extra biblical. She's mentioned in the Old Testament in passing. She's called a desolation and she's called a night owl, a screeching owl in the wilderness and a bunch of other things. Have you ever heard of the character? Yes. Mm -hmm. Do you know the folklore around? Yes. Okay. I know you do. (laughs) You know me too well. Um, So, the folklore that Lilith was Adam's first wife. But they were created separately by God, and that Lilith considered herself Adam's equal. So, she wanted as much say as Adam. Uh had and because of that she was thrown out of the garden and sent to wonder and so she swore vengeance against mankind and she gave birth to a legion of demons okay so that's the little story and then of course Eve was created later and she was created from where Adam's rib so she's right. always part of him and thus subservient Correct. to him, um, which is why, you know, what feminists 
celebrate, you know, they have these things like called Lilith fairs and things like that. And it's like, yeah, yep. don't tell me what to do. So, <laughs> so that's, that's the underlying yes. legend. And it is a legend, you know. And they trace this Lilith name somewhat to some Akkadian folklore, you know, the Assyri- ancient Assyrians, the ancient Mesopotamians. Um, there's a character named Litu, and there's a one called Lilu, which have pretty much the same origin story, just not the Adam and Eve part. But, you know, first woman created, didn't get along with the first man, cast out, becomes the mother of demons. And um, so among all these other creatures, you know, there are demons that feed on human blood. There are demons that come and seduce you in the night. They're called succubi and incubi. And uh, so all these terrible night things are... Oh, they come... And it's always at night. night. They don't come out. Yes. And uh, they're afraid of the light. Another fable. Now we'll move from the Middle East right into the Greeks. Another fable that kind of connects with this somewhat is um, the story of Pandora and her bo- and the box of secrets that she's given as a gift. You know, the Greeks with their gods, they were just us done really, really big. And so they were deceptive and cruel and <laughs> and warlike and stupid as human beings are tend to be. And so, you know, somebody wanted to get even with somebody else. So they get, found Pandora and they gave her this magical box and said, you can don't don't ever open it, which because they knew she would. And when that she opens it outstreams the miasma, which was a Greek philosophical idea that in the night air, there are all kinds of evil forces at work, which cause disease and pestilence and things like that. So she released all this, she released the miasma into the world. And that miasma was actually a philosophical idea that influenced medicine for years. See, see, that's where I was going to go. Is there a prescription that I can um, take for miasma? I think you're Sorry. smoking it, actually. No. Um, uh, I might be drinking it. I have enhanced uh, iced tea that I'm drinking. So, so anyway, okay. um, yeah, so, so this idea of, you know, the bad air, the nighttime air, which comes to you um, and... Uh, uh, will cause you to become ill and wither away and die is because it's laden with bad spirits, okay? As a matter of fact, it's interesting that one of the first social engineers in London suggested that they divert dumping excrement <laughs> and household waste and and waste from the stables that they quit throwing it into uh, the Thames and that he actually build canals to carry it away from the riverbanks and things like that. 
and he created uh. one of the first septic systems. Now the Romans had them, but after the after Rome fell, you know, we went right back to you know privies and things like that, and then that had to be emptied out, and that you just took it right. to the nearest river and threw it in. So they were seeing outbreaks mm-hmm. of malaria, which he thought came from miasma from the foul air being produced by the way they were processing waste and said if we move it away from the city we will avoid the miasma well what they were actually doing was moving the bugs and the mosquitoes and all that sort of stuff he wanted to get rid of all the standing water and all that kind of stuff so they moved all that away and by golly the diseases went with them he didn't know what he was doing, but, you know, he thought he was getting rid of, quote unquote, the miasma. Uh, <laughs> and eventually people figured out that, oh, you know, well, the germ <laughs> theory of, of diseases, not that old, really. You know, so, I mean, people were just starting right, to practice right. vaccinations in the late 1700s. So, um, yeah, so it's not that we, we have been we have been not understanding disease for thousands of years. So, so this idea that, you know, okay, so the blood is the vitality of the body. Um, actually, they thought it carried, it carried the ideas from the heart, which is where the consciousness was located through the rest of the body so the body could operate. So that was carried your vitality. And um, and and wow. so this idea of a, a part of the miasma who comes at night and who would feed on that vitality, which would feed on blood, um, was a, sort of, a, once again, a universal idea. Now, the other thing is that people believe there was a particular type of spirit, of spirit, miasmic spirit that would feed on blood. And that would be, that would be some demonic Here we go. possession <laughs> of a formerly living human being <clears throat> raising from the grave, some form of living dead person who would either as a spirit or perhaps oh. as a, you know, a reanimated corpse would come to maintain its vitality by feeding on human blood and sometimes the blood of animals. And so there became this concept of the vampire. And the vampire is very, very old. And once again, it's a universal thing. You find vampires in just about every culture, you know, as part of their folklore. Some of them are really bizarre. But for the most part, they're either a demon or a reanimated corpse who seeks the vitality of human blood. Wow. Now, that is frightening. Now, now question for you. How does Transylvania and Romania and and the noble family, how does um, all that fit? The 14th and and 1500s in the Balkans, in the area we call the Balkans now, um, it's a pretty awful place (laughs) because there was a lot of 
pressures. There were, you know, there were various Holy Roman emperors who seemed to bounce back and forth between Spain and, you know, Austria, uh, the, the, this, this lower German region that was eventually broken up into places like Hungary and Czechoslovakia and Austria and places like that. So, um, so there were Holy Roman emperors, but there was also, that was a gateway for the Ottoman Turks who were in conquest mo mode at that time. And of course, Christian Europe saw the Ottomans mm. as ungodly because they they were Muslims, they practiced Islam, and they were really good at conquering, you know, weaker areas and incorporating them. And of course, converting people, um, you know, by the sword, which of course, Christians had never, ever done. Ha, ha, ha. Uh, <laughs> but the bottom line is, yeah, it was open warfare between <laughs> the invading Turkish armies and the Christian defenders. Right. Of um, uh, uh, of the Balkans, and they were broken up into these little petty kingdoms, and they were, and they were alternately at war with each other and unifying each with each other to fight the Turks, and then selling each other out to the Turks. I mean, it was the dirtiest politics you can possibly imagine. So, there was a family from a province called Wallachia. And the Wallachians had a great military leader, and he was he defeated the Turks at a huge battle, and you know temporarily got everybody's act together uh, to fight, and so he was awarded by the Holy Roman Emperor a particular knighthood, you know, and he was called the Dragon. And the, the, the Wallachian Balkan mm. language word for that was Thrakul. Yes. It also means dragon. Is another word for which, devil? Once again, oh. it can be considered the devil. Okay. So he was a devil to the Turks, basically. And he wow. fought them off. He had two sons, Radu and Vlad. And the guy that we like to think of as the origin of the Dracula story was Vlad Tepish. Vlad Dracul, because it became a family honor to carry this type of, this particular knighthood. Okay. And of course, it's been Anglicanized by Vlad. Interesting. Into Vlad Dracula. So there's the guy. Now, Vlad had a short and very <laughs> violent life. He alternately fought for his brother, Radu, for the crown. They double-crossed each other. They sold each other into slavery to the Turks. They alternately organized with other kingdoms wow. to fight each other and the Turks. It was a mess. And everybody talks about um, Vlad Tepish's um, cruelty. Uh, he there's a famous woodcut of him having breakfast in a courtyard with people impaled on stakes around him dying. I mean, it's a horrible. Wow. Yeah, just wow. imagine that. Yeah. I won't describe it, but just imagine a sharpened stake about eight feet long 
and you're stuck on it and your own body weight and the heat of the sun causes that to slowly pierce through your body until you die. Yeah. Wow. Good that times. definitely creates <laughs> a, an image and a Plus, reputation. Yeah, there were well, other guy. legends about him. I'm not going to his I'm not going to his barbecue. Um, <laughs> social awareness. He got all the poor people and all the cripples together in a big dining hall. And, you know, because they were a burden to the, you know, to society being homeless and out on the streets. And he gave them a big meal and then locked all the doors and windows and set the place on fire and burned them all to death. I mean, we don't know for sure that happened. Hold oh, on. Lord. This, and he's a folk hero. Wow. He's on coins. He's a, um, we don't know where. I think we kind of know where his castle was located or his, his fortress or keep, but there's a totally different place that the Romanian government publicizes and you have, you know, year round trips to Romania to spend the night in Dracula's castle. You know, it's all, it's all tourism. It's all tourism. Yes. <laughs> so now we, we've set the, we've set, the legend in place. All right, here's this thing. What seemingly to us more, much more sophisticated mm -hmm. and kind people <laughs> uh, is, is this incredibly cruel, monstrous being <laughs> who also was called the devil, except that was a knighthood, you know, that was, was hereditary. It was passed down to him by his father. Um, and you have some interest among ro the romantics uh, uh, in this kind of thing. And so you start storytelling. But also, you know, you have these stories, these vampire stories, which pop up throughout folklore in every country in Europe, including in England. And there are certain tropes that became a little more solidified. You have these um, living dead creatures in Greece. Um, there's a great Boris Karloff movie, if you love old black and white movies, called The Isle of the Dead, which is, Boris oh, Karloff yes. is this guy fighting, he's a general in the Greek Civil War, and he has a beautiful wife, and a plague hits, and people begin dying mysteriously right at one after another, and so oh they have an island off the mainland where they bury everybody. Of course, it's Greece because it's lots of islands. But eventually, people start talking about vampires. The vampires have come back because of the war and it attracted them. And, these, and so you see this, this modern, modern general played by Boris Karloff, his mental state deteriorate. And when his wife sickens and dies, he believes she's been carried off and she's become one of the living dead. And it's a really powerful movie. It's more gothic than it is horror. Um, so that's one example of this kind of folklore. Another one is, and this is important, an important factor. Um, there's, a there's a sort of a more Serbian, Russian, Ukraine version of the vampire called the Virdalak. 
and all, there's a lot of v, V's and W's, you know, because they're pronounced the same. But the weird lack of bird lack. Oh, yes. Um, Gogol wrote a whole, seri- a whole series of stories about Russian folklore, and he did one called Der Verdelak, um, about a man who goes out to hunt a bandit and disappears, and then he comes back to his family, and they begin dying one by one because the guy whose head he brings back with them, he was also a vampire, and now he's one, and he begins preying on his family. There was a, oh. an anthology of horror stories, once again, with good old Boris in it, where he plays the Verdlack. So um, some great old movies there. Um, I think it was called Black Sunday was the name of that movie. Um, so anyway, so here you go. You have this mm. undead creature who comes out of the grave or maybe walks around but seeks out family members to sustain itself because of the familial connection. Then they'll let him do it. They'll invite him in. See, here's the building of the folklore. Um, So how do you dispatch a creature? Well, lots of ways. You can use iron. So you can strap iron straps around coffins. You can build iron gates in cemeteries to keep the spirits of the dead from rising. You wonder where that came from? There you go. Iron gates around cemeteries. Uh-huh. They look picturesque. They keep interlopers out, but they keep the dead in their place too. You actually see iron bars across some coffins. Oh. Some coffins. And there's a whole subplot here. You know, there became in the 17 and 1800s a great fear of premature burial. As a matter of fact, there's a really great horror story called The Premature Burial. And, you know, there was actually people were putting alarm systems into coffins so that people, so if people woke up and oh, yes. they weren't really dead. Oh, yes, the little bells. alert someone to dip it back <laughs> up again before their oxygen ran out. Yeah, just ring the bell. <laughs> so how do you... They would just ring the bell. Yes, I'm here. Well, Come one get thing me. would be to, as I said, to use iron. Another way would be to remove the head from the body, to decapitate it so that it could not, if it would rise, it, couldn't, it, w- it wouldn't have a head to bite people with. Or to stuff the mouth with things like stones or bricks. True. Some people would cut off the heart. And they would actually burn the heart to, to ashes. And some people made potions from that to take, to ward off the miasma. Uh, garlic. See, garlic I, I thought garlic would garlic work. Is I a, thought that was a, the thing. Wives cure for a lot of things. And actually garlic is pretty good for you. It's a blood thinner. Weird. <laughs> <laughs> They should bleed better. Um, <laughs> and, um, but the other thing, too, is um, to pin the corpse to the ground. Because the corpse is getting out of sacred ground and wandering around. So you want to pin it down to sacred ground. And one way to do that is to take iron, big iron nails or a wooden stake and pound it through the corpse. 
to keep it in place. Another popular way to get rid of a vampire was to go to a crossroads and bury the corpse in the center of the crossroads for obviously because of the Christian symbolism. Okay, so so we've we've pretty much got the folklore together. Now, here's what happened. There was a very it was a very dark and stormy year in in the early 1800s and a group of english dilettantes rented a um a villa on lake geneva it was the summer of a volcanic eruption and so the weather systems were extremely disrupted um so there were a lot of storms and things like that but these dilettantes did a grand tour of Europe. They sailed down the Danube and they absorbed all kinds of folk tales about ghosts and vampires and mad alchemists who were trying to, you know, bring the dead to life and things like that. And they absorbed all this stuff. And then they decided during a really extremely stormy week to stay in the villa and amuse each other by writing folk, uh, by writing ghost stories. Well, two of the the two professionals, mm. nobody cares about what they wrote, and those those professionals were Lord Byron and Percy Bysshe Shelley. But the two people who were considered to be insignificant, oh. <laughs> uh, John Polidori, who was uh, Lord Byron's companion and personal physician. And Percy Shelley's wife, Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. She wrote a book about Uh scientists creating new life from the bodies of corpses and bringing it to life. And the horror of a creature, uh, a grotesque creature born without a soul. And John Polidori wrote a story called mm. The Vampire. And that, when he went back to London, of course, those all the writings were eventually pu- refined and published. And John Polidori started this huge fad for vampire stories. And, you know, they had these dime newspapers or penny newspapers called Penny Dreadfuls because they just printed anything they could lay their hands on. And so... His story was serialized. In oh, yeah. Dreadful. Oh, yeah. And then <laughs> that started a whole trope of people writing vampire stories. And there's a very popular one called Barney the Vampire, who was a decadent uh, English aristocrat who came back as uh, a member of the living dead. And, and actually, they think that Barney the Vampire and the vampire in Polidori's story was actually based on Lord By- Byron, who was as licentious as any human being could possibly be. Interestingly and interestingly enough, um, <laughs> um, Percy Shelley, he, he died. Um, uh, I think he died in a shipwreck and his body washed ashore and was found during a time of a plague and they cut his heart out and burned it. Interesting. So anyway, so that brings us to this really weird Victorian guy. He was an Irishman. He was a writer. He was a um, theatrical critic. 
and eventually became a theatrical agent and a theater manager. And he was a contemporary and friend of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and another infamous guy uh, uh, who was also an <laughs> Irish writer who you may have heard of. Uh, and, a, and a few other, you know, very literary guys. And interestingly enough, this guy, his name was Abraham Stoker, or Bram, as everybody called him. Um, he was married, mm-hmm. but he had kind of a Correct. Victorian bromance with an actor who was the chief actor of this troupe that he managed and the theater that he managed. And when you read in Bram Stoker's novel that he wrote called Dracula, the description of the Count when he manages to appear in London, which is quite mm-hmm. different than the way he looks in, um, you know, in, in Transylvania in his castle. Um, it's a spitting image of this actor <laughs> that Bram kind of had a fixation on. Um, and, and Bram <laughs> got his name from, of course, his fellow Irish writer, Oscar Wilde. Um, and so there's some questions about, you know, how repressed mm-hmm. a person Bram Stoker actually was. Uh, because he dedicated his, his marriage was childless and he dedicated his life to sort of the admiration and pr- promotion of this actor. And so he wrote this very interesting novel because if you, re- have you read Dracula? Okay, so you know, it's made, up, it's not a straightforward story. It's made up yes, of I have. people's diary entries and Jonathan Harker's right. travel log and the observations yes. of the doctors who keep Mr. Renfield mm-hmm. in the asylum, you know, <laughs> who, who's trying to consume life. That's why he eats bugs and vermin. Yeah, all these stories come together. Yeah, there's lots of side stories. This Correct. legend about this infamous uh, defender of the faith from Wallachia, you know, Vlad Tepish. So there's the implication that Mm -hmm. this Count uh, Voivodo Dracula, which of course Voivodo basically means Count, uh, it's a a political title, um, uh, is actually Vlad Tepish you know, walking the earth as the living dead, you know. But there, it's a very sexy novel, too, for the oh. Victorians. You know, the Victorians, you know, had to put frilly things. They were so uptight, they had to put frilly carvings on piano legs in case they were too suggestive. <laughs> so so there's these yes. really powerful undercurrents. Yes. And, you know, in yes. Victorian England, and there's a lot of xenophobia in Victorian England, especially about foreigners. You know, this is the time of empire. This is the time of Queen Victoria. And, um, you know, so you see this fear of foreigners you know they're swarthy and kind of weird and you know we can't trust them though we find them really sexy at the same time it's all in there okay so that becomes the source (laughs) of all the modern yes yes for for the vampire but still you know when you first 
encounter Dracula, he's a withered old man. He's got supernatural strength, uh, and he's right. a manipulator, mm-hmm. you know, of great power. But he's a withered old man. He's almost a walking corpse with long fingernails and long hair hanging down, which is exactly, you know, the myth that they used to believe that, you know, after you die, your fingernails and your hair continues to grow. Yeah. So it's all there. You know, it's all there. Keep growing. Mm -hmm. Now, do we have time to talk about a real vampire scare? Okay. So you have a real Dracula scare for us. Yeah, I do. I do. Um, And uh, it's pretty interesting because there are, um, of course, vampire legends all over the place. Uh, And uh, people, of course, came here from Europe and and some of them brought their folklore and their beliefs right along with them. Okay, so we're going to talk about uh, the areas of Rhode Island, Connecticut, Vermont, parts of New England. And uh, one of the, some of the names here are um, Rachel Burton, Samuel Saladay, Frederick Ransom, Mm-hmm. And perhaps the best name is best known name is Mercy Brown. These are cases that were discovered or rediscovered in this way. There was a group of kids in the I think it was the ninth, uh, the nineteen nineties. It's that recent. Um, they were playing near a place where there was an excavation, um, and it was also a time when the police were on high alert because they thought there might be a serial killer in the air, in this area in Connecticut. And the kids were playing in this, this area that was being excavated for, you know, new construction and they found human bones. So they reported it. They found a skull and the skull was weird because it had a stone shoved into its mouth. Oh my. And so they, they called in forensics people, of course, and they stopped the construction, which is what you do, you know, and they called in some anthropologists and the anthropologists started excavating and they realized this was an old cemetery that had been abandoned. And when they excavated the one body, they were shocked because it looks like the body had been previously excavated, that the head was cut from the body. And that there were burn marks. The chest had been cut open with some sort of instrument like an axe or something like that. And then the bones had been rearranged under the skulls so that the femurs were crossed under the skull. It literally was a skull and crossbones. Wow. So the anthropologist called in a folklorist, (laughs) which is you know, an unusual way, but he said, this was so weird. And so the folklorist identified this and he said, oh, this is another cemetery that was part of the New England vampire panic. So (laughs) knowing all the stuff I told you about the legends of vampires, that they're, you know, they're they're, um, surrounded not only by 
this blood-sucking activity that goes on, but pestilence, they bring disease with them. There's a scene in uh, at least one Dracula movie and in the movie Nosferatu, which is the first film of Dracula that was ever made, where you see rats pouring off the ship. Oh, yes. Yeah, and rats, of course, carry bubonic plague and other uh-huh. diseases. Interesting tie-in to your, um, your bonus episode. The actor who played the Nosferatu, uh, Count Orlock, in that movie was named Max Shrek. Is that last wow. name ring a bell? <laughs> Guy Shrek, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, Creepy. that's a weird coincidence, but there you go. Um, and so vampires were part of the miasma once again, and they carried that with them. So any kind of vermin that were, was considered to be un, unclean and frightening could be part of the vampire legend. They could be, they could transform into wolves. They could transform into rats. They could, they could be seen as floating on the night air. And what else floats in the night air? Bats. So, right. and bats are considered vermin. They're just flying rats to some people. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so that becomes part of the legend. And in the 1700s, they go to that, you know, the British Empire has conquered India and they've also visited South America. And what kind of bats do they have in those two places? Those Vampire large fruit bats. bats. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that becomes part of the story, too. But the most important part is the disease. And of course, the attraction of a vampire to familial victims, you know, victims going one, going through a family one at a time, people sicken and die, they become pale, they become disease ridden, they cough up blood. Does that sound like anything you've heard of before? Oh, yes. Tuberculosis. Oh, yes. 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 So, when there were tuberculosis outbreaks, the more superstitious members of the community believed that was caused by vampires. That's crazy. And even as wow. late as the 1800s, when tuberculosis would hit some rural communities in, in New England and other places too, I think this is they found the same sort of thing in Ohio, people would panic. That's why it's called the vampire panic. And sure. they would look for proof. And that included exhuming the graves of the recently deceased. Now, one of the things that they would find was here's a here's a body that that kind of doesn't look like it's in decomposition yet. And there might be flecks of what looked like fresh blood on the lips because the person died of tuberculosis. Right, right. And that wow. in many cases was proof that this was a vampire attack. And so they would exhume the bodies of whole families and then treat the bodies in the ways I described. They would put iron cages over the bodies. They would decapitate them. They would put garlic in the coffins and they would often cut out the heart and burn it, which was a, you know, that's one of the cures for vampirism you don't read about in Dracula, but it was a very common 
activity when this kind of supernatural entity was suggested. And often the ash from that would be mixed with a tincture of alcohol and consumed by other family members to ward off the vampire attack. Oh, wow. But of course, tuberculosis is, is a bacteriological infection and mm -hmm. it didn't work. As a matter of fact, it may have actually, I don't know if it would have infected people or not, but you know, oh. it was, it was, it was folklore, but these graves existed all over New England, as I said, and we have real records. I mean, the story of Mercy Brown is really tragic. Her mother contracted consumption and spread it to the rest of the family, first her sister, then her brother, and then finally Mercy got it. Uh, the neighbors believed that one of the family members was a vampire who had the illness. And two months after she died, her father, George Brown, um, who didn't believe in any of this, folded to social pressure and allowed them to dig up the bodies of his family. And they found that Mercy's body showed very little decomposition and had fresh blood in her heart and on her lips. And it, the body had turned in the grave. Oh. Which meant, which, you know, that's rigor mortis, basically, but they didn't right. understand that. So the body moved. That means it came back to life. And so they took her heart out, burn it, mix it with water, and gave it to her surviving brother to drink to ward off the influence of the undead, which, of course, didn't work because he eventually died of consumption as well. And her, on her gravestone, it says, Mercy L. Uh, Brown, daughter of George T. and Mary E. Brown, um, died January 17th, 1892, aged 19 years old. You can still go see her. Her, her grave in the cemetery. Um, and I mean, it's amazing. Um, Ransom, um, Frederick Ransom, uh, he, was, he was a Dartmouth College student from a rich family, but he was treated the same way because he had the unfortunate, you know, um, uh, uh, circumstance to... Uh, developed tuberculosis wow and and henry david thoreau actually wrote in his journals about this stuff so we know it happened and we know it was it was factual uh that people reacted in a panic this way and and mm -hmm. and when people are confronted with something strange and unusual as we've said before they act out in really scary and terrifying ways i mean you know we had we had cell phone towers burned down when COVID started out. That's because true. Because of panic yes. and a rumor. Yep. And so that's the story of the vampire. And now, of course, you know we've taken the sexy vampire <laughs> to to uh, unusual lengths because now, of course, we're back to Stephanie Mars and you know. Uh, sparkly teenage boys <laughs> who never age, yes who are vampires yes. who are, have the strength of of, a, of you know Captain America or something like that um, and who are just really you know misunderstood adolescents 
that's true. <laughs> <laughs> that's one way of looking at yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> but when you really think about the, 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 the vampire, you know, once again, think of a demon, think of the illustration of a vampire in Nosferatu, you know, the skull-like head, the bat-like ears, the, 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 the emaciated figure with the long, elongated fingers and fingernails, lusting after one thing and willing to do anything to get it, you know. Um, yeah. That's the classic vampire right there. Even, even you know, um, decadent European counts in their opera capes and tuxedos <laughs> are not... Um, are are, 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 are are a bit of a stretch from that. Um, yes. You know, and, and realize that, you know, in his youth, Bela Lugosi was very much a matinee idol. Women would go mm. to see him in the play Dracula and literally faint because they were so overcome with how, how sexy the guy was, you know, playing Dracula. And... Uh, <laughs> All thanks to Bram Stoker, that weird repressed uh, Irishman. Oh, and by the way, one interesting little point. During the height of this time, and, you know, uh, Bram Stoker was friends with American authors. He was friends with both Thoreau and Walt Whitman. Um, right. That, that British acting troupe was traveling through New England. So he found... He would have found newspaper articles talking about it and collected them. As a matter of fact, the original manuscript for Dracula, you know where it was found? In a barn in Pennsylvania. No. Yes, yes it was. It was bought by one of the tech multi-billionaires uh, uh, when it came up to auction. And you know what the original title was? The Undead. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so that's our stories. <laughs> wow. Wow. Well, as always, Michael, you, you totally captivate and, and, and you share the, the intimate details of, of what Hollywood tried to sell yeah. us. And uh, you, you told us the real stories. And I, I appreciate it, and my Hollywood friend. And by I, literature and movies and television. Oh, yes. And so it's almost unrecognizable from its original origins. Yeah, it's all glorified and, you know. Got to wow. sell tickets, got to put people in the seats. And <laughs> scare a lot of folks, indeed. Well, Michael, as always, I appreciate your time. I appreciate uh, the, the great storytelling. And until next time, okay. uh, this was a podcast about everything. And you can find us on Twitter at podcast about ev too so thank you so much for listening thank you for all of your support please share and subscribe and we'll come back to you next week have a great day so long everybody